one knows where Herefordshire is, so I'll describe it to you the way I always do. It's a tiny rural county that marks the English-Welsh border. On its west side are Powys and Monmouthshire. On its east is Worcestershire. We're not famous in Herefordshire by any means, but you might know us by our exports. Hereford beef cattle, Bournemouth cider and Tyrrell's crisps. Good old-fashioned farming stock. Less than 200,000 people live there and like it that way. It's one of the most beautiful and overlooked spots in England. It also used to be one of the most powerful places in pre-modern Britain. By the time I moved permanently to Herefordshire in 2000, it was well past its days as a seat of power. Instead, it was a county gently moored in the past, an idyllic rural setting where life ticked over and you could see most of the local village in the pub on a Friday night. Aged five, my mum put my sister and me in our creaky old Vauxhall Vectra and sped away from our previous life in Eastbourne and the ghost of my absent father. Herefordshire wasn't a random choice for our new beginning. It was where she grew up and where many of her siblings still live. I grew up here from the age of about 14. My mum's side of the family are deeply rooted in the fertile earth of Herefordshire. While tracing my family's connections with the county, it became clear a phone call to mum was needed. William Tomlinson bought the house. The cottage that we called home was bought by my bricklayer great-great-grandfather. The 24th of July 1908, I'm looking at the poster. Your granddad was born in this house. Who then built some of the scattering of houses that make up the hamlet I grew up in. The Tomlinsons had been in the area for years. And when William Tomlinson's daughter, my great-grandma Caroline Tomlinson, married her new husband John McLean, he might have been born in Glasgow, but his grandma had been from Dilwyn, Herefordshire, a 40-minute bike ride away. He came back because we always came back for holidays and because my great-aunt lived here. And then we came back in the 60s because she'd left the house to my parents. But while the history of my white Herefordian side is well-documented, it's only half of me. The other 50% is Black Caribbean. Jamaican, to be precise. Your dad's family. I can't trace them very far back at all. My dad, Leonard Lothian of Kingston, Jamaica, left when I was three. He died when I was 10. Tracing the histories of the descendants of African slaves in the Caribbean is hard enough to do orally, let alone without the primary source there to consult. What he told me was pretty garbled. His great-granddad, or a granddad, I don't even know which generation, somebody came from Scotland to Jamaica, but we don't know who, and I don't know when. His own family, his mother was from one of the parishes outside of Kingston, and his dad, he worked as a driver, and he was mixed. Your grandma, Lothian, came from the Maroons, they were the slaves in Jamaica who um, rebelled and went up into the hills with a name like Lothian. If his ancestors went from Scotland, they more than likely went as overseers. For most of the 26 years I've been on this earth, my Jamaican side has always felt like a black hole and a history literally thousands of miles away from the documented white British history that roots me in Herefordshire. Even though I knew British and Caribbean worlds collided and shaped each other, the history of Britain I learned in porter cabins at school kept that world at a distance. Slavery, in particular, was an isolated event, confined to a specific period of history, both physically and temporally, far, far away. 
As for its legacy, you could still see it occasionally in some urban centres in the UK, like the port cities of Liverpool or the financial capital of London. But the closest that history got to Herefordshire was in the form of the odd mixed-race black child who had Caribbean roots, a.k.a. me, and of which I met no other apart from my sister until I went to college at 16. And even then, there were four out of a student population of about 1,200. Herefordshire in my youth was 98% white. Even the immigrants, who were receiving an increasingly hostile reception, were white Polish farm workers. As mixed-race Jamaican legend Bob Marley once said, when you know your history, you will know where you're coming from. I don't know my history, and I don't know where I'm coming from, or where I'm going. Neither do millions of other Brits from all sorts of ethnic backgrounds. Some are aware, but many more of us have a cobbled together, self-taught understanding of what British history is. We know it involves empire, colonisation and slavery, but there is a gap in joining up our knowledge. Did modern Britain develop alongside slavery or because of it? Why is slavery taught as black history and not British history? What British institutions and social structures owe their foundation to the slave trade? And does physical distance mean that slavery really didn't touch these shores? I can't ask my dad where I'm from, but I can go on my own journey to join up these histories. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it, been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. I'm Moya Lohi McLean, a journalist and descendant of both black African slaves and white British slave owners or overseers. In Human Resources, I'll be exploring the true story of British slavery and how it touches every part of the nation. I'm not here to retrospectively condemn for the most part. I just want to learn the truth about how the British slave trade shaped my past, our past and our present. I'm starting at home, in Herefordshire. It feels strange to think of my peaceful little home county in the context of slavery, but equally odd that I haven't done so before. After all, Herefordshire is ancient. Since the Romans came to British shores, Herefordshire has been in the midst of all the fighting and politicking that has directed the course of history. The English used to rule Wales from Herefordshire and next door Shropshire, which are so entwined as to be almost interchangeable. Herefordshire's influence in British politics lasted well until the Industrial Revolution, and we've got the landmarks to prove it. 
Almost everywhere you turn, there's the remains of some medieval castle or a Tudor mansion. Hereford Cathedral houses the Mappamundi, which we claim as the largest medieval map known to exist in the world. Every schoolchild in the county has trotted by at some point. It's been a long time since Hereford was seen as a powerhouse by the rest of Britain, though. Put it this way, Herefordshire is most likely to gain any national recognition via country file. One of our top claims to fame is being home to actor John Chalice, who plays Boise from Only Fools and Horses, and even he technically lives in the neighbouring county. That's not to say Herefordshire isn't somewhere to be proud of. It is. It's just not exactly at the vortex of current events. You'd probably think Herefordshire is the last place to start a story about British slavery. Surely we should be heading to London or Bristol. Well, in the northwest of Herefordshire, there's a picture-perfect market town called Kington. All red brick and Tudor houses. The local state secondary school here is called Lady Hawkins School. It's where one of Herefordshire's most currently famous daughters, pop star Ellie Goulding, was taught. I can't remember where I first heard about the origins of Lady Hawkins, but it's local knowledge that it was originally built with slave money in 1619. The school was founded by Lady Margaret Hawkins, who came from a wealthy Kington family and was the second wife of Sir John Hawkins. Remember that name? The man dubbed Britain's first slave trader. When she died in 1619, long after her husband, Lady Margaret left £800 in her will to build a free school in Kington for the instructing of youths and children in literature and good education. Doesn't sound much, but it's equivalent to just under a quarter of a million quid in today's currency. Generous. Lady Hawkins' teaching staff themselves used to play up this link to Sir John and his unsavoury work. In 2007, their head of humanities wrote a BBC article titled A School with a Slaving Past. But after the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020, they've denied that Lady Margaret's money had any link to the slaving practices of her husband. As far as trails go, it's warm. I want to know more about Lady Margaret's free school. What can tracing its history tell us about the British society that gave birth to the slave trade? How did it actually start? And what does it show about who benefited from the spoils? Are economic legacies the key to understanding Britain's hidden slavery history? It's clear that Africans are not enslaved in Tudor England and not necessarily primarily conceived of as enslaved people. This is Dr Miranda Kaufman, the author of Black Tudors, The Untold Story, and an expert on Africans in Renaissance Britain. In the example of John Blank, the trumpeter at the court of Henry VII and Henry VIII, you know, he's a skilled musician. We don't know exactly how he ended up in England, but he probably came in the entourage of Catherine of Aragon from Spain in 1501. And he's certainly at court between 1507 and 1512 when he gets married and Henry VIII gives him a wedding present. And due to the small numbers of black people in Britain at this time, it's highly likely that he married a, a white Tudor woman. So that again shows a, a level of acceptance. And we have Jack Francis, the salvage diver, who is working on the wreck of the Mary Rose in the 1540s in Southampton. And he's employed by a Venetian man called Peter Paolo Corsi. And another interesting thing about him is, as far as we know, he's the first black man to testify in a, an English court of law. And again, being allowed to testify in court is a sort of civic right that is not extended later on to enslaved Africans in, in the British colonies, for example. 
and that there's another sort of reference that's quite interesting to uh, probably a mercenary soldier fighting in the war against Scotland. And we don't have a name for him, but he's described as being as sharp a moor as rides. So, you know, very good horseman. There are also a few Africans at the court of James IV of Scotland. And there's a couple of other references. So there's an African in Exeter who is just assessed as being someone who could serve in the army if they were trying to gather recruits. So he's a billman, so he can wield this weapon called a bill. So I think that Africans are treated sort of in this period according to their skills and abilities and their status and are treated sort of accordingly. Miranda tells me that prior to the first voyage of John Hawkins in 1562, the Tudors weren't involved in the trade of enslaved Africans. Tudor England wasn't exactly a racial utopia, but enslavement was not the primary context people thought of Africans existing in. So what changed? Who was John Hawkins and why did he kickstart English involvement in a trade that would go on to kill millions of black Africans and change the course of history forever? As far as I remember it, he got the idea in the Canary Islands when he was chatting to some Portuguese merchants in a bar, more or less. Basically, he was a merchant before the 1560s. He was obviously already a merchant trading in other in other goods from Plymouth and trading in the Canary Islands. And he literally was like, I, I got the idea from talking to these merchants. And so, I mean, it's very much emulating something that the Portuguese have been successful in. And he's very much an interloper into an Iberian world. So he, he follows in the Portuguese footsteps when he goes to Africa. And then he's selling the enslaved Africans to the Spanish, essentially, in, in the Caribbean, but into Spanish colonies. So he's trying to get a piece of the action following in the footsteps of the Portuguese, essentially. Why does someone like Hawkins want a piece of the action? What was England's role in the world at this time? What did enslaving Africans offer for them? Well, I think that England was a small, relatively weak king off the edge of Europe. And they are you know, looking to make alliances on the continent, particularly at the beginning of the Tudor period. Spain has become this world power because it's a global empire, especially after 1580 when Philip II of Spain also takes over the Portuguese empire and then he really is this sort of universal monarch. So the English are definitely uh, jealous of that status and the wealth that they are extracting from South America in terms of gold and silver particularly and the new wealth that they're sort of developing in their growing South American and Caribbean colonies. It's actually um, John Hawkins's father, William Hawkins, who is an early sort of entrepreneur in that way. And he actually goes on several voyages to Brazil via Guinea in the 1530s. And he brings back sort of ivory. And he actually brings a Brazilian king back with him and presents him to Henry VIII at court. But unfortunately, the king dies on the return voyage. How did John Hawkins' foray into turning black Africans into commodities go? So Hawkins' first voyage in 1562 was successful and that attracted investment in his second voyage. And Elizabeth I herself invests in it. And so do several other courtiers. And it gets to the point where he, he gets knighted and he actually chooses an image of a bound African as the crest on his coat of arms. So, yeah, so there are these um, troubling indicators there of what was to become normal later on. As Miranda recounts, though, John Hawkins didn't commit himself to the slave trade for the rest of his career. It was a side hustle. 
England's first official enslaver of Africans hit a roadblock. Although his first three voyages sold people to the Spanish Caribbean colonies, his fourth voyage saw him attacked by the Spanish, who aren't very pleased that he's encroaching on their moneymaker. From 1569 until the 1640s, so about 80 years, there is, according to Miranda, very little enslavement activity on the part of the British. It wasn't out of any great social conscience, though. They'd worked out that to really exploit the rich as slavery promised, they would need colonies of their own for this new, raw, capitalist system to operate within. Then it wouldn't just be slave traders getting rich. It would be an entire network of landowners, merchants, financiers and careers that had not yet even been invented because they did not exist before slavery made them possible. But what of Lady Margaret Hawkins, Sir John's second wife, and the school she founded in my home county? Was it really built on riches gleaned from early forays into slavery? How on earth do we trace such tangled lines of credit and debt that were beginning to be used as financial instruments in the early stages of capitalism? It's hard enough tracking your receipts now for the taxman, let alone uncovering those of a 17th century aristocrat before modern accounting systems were even properly formed. Do we need to know where every penny comes from before we can talk confidently about the legacies of British slavery? I've found it very frustrating in other contexts when people sort of try and disavow this history by saying there isn't a direct financial connection. You know, we can't say for certain, for example, that this school was built with money, which was the profits of enslavement. So, you know, that's it. And I think... When we're looking at connections to enslavement, we need to have a much broader remit. And this is something I really learned from Madge Dresser, who's a historian in Bristol. In a different project in sort of 2006, in the run up to, to the bicentenary of the abolition of slave trade in 2007, I did some research into English heritage properties links to enslavement. And Madge sort of devised this sort of I don't know, a list of at least 10 different ways in which a property might be connected. And it, was ne- it wasn't just the sort of direct stereotypical thing of a man went out to the Caribbean, made this money from enslavement and then came back to England and built a country house or bought a country house with the proceeds. You know, that's obviously one kind of obvious direct connection, but he could have married an heiress. And then that gets hidden a bit because her family name gets subsumed by his family name and So you have to dig a bit into the families that have married in. They might have profited from trading in goods that are kind of closely related to the slave trade or the profits of. So if they made profits from tobacco trading or if they were near Birmingham involved with the metal trades that were making like shackles and things for the slaving ships. So there were just so many other ways in which our history is connected with that history. So I have this frustration when people just say purely like follow the money. I mean, some of those other types of connections are still following the money, but it's going in slightly more roundabout routes. But purely the name Hawkins, because historically, certainly by the Victorian period, Drake and Hawkins were heroes. They were Victorian heroes of who laid the foundations of the empire that the Victorians were still enjoying. That's how they were characterised, although... I think their activities were a lot more piecemeal and they didn't necessarily have this grand vision of the British Empire when they were just trying to make some money, really. But, you know, that's how a lot of bad things get started. 
the East India Company was just trying to make some money. So I think when you're thinking about a school or any other institution named after somebody like this, you have to think, right, okay, Lady Hawkins, second wife of Sir John Hawkins, he was a knight of the realm. Yeah, he fought in the Armada battle. What would have happened to England if we'd lost the Armada battle? Who knows? But also thinking, well, okay, yeah, you know, he was the first English trafficker in enslaved Africans, and that's a really significant part of his story, and we have to acknowledge that. Speaking to Miranda, I'm reframing how I think of this story. It's clear that the tendrils of British slavery reach further into society than just the immediate actors, like the trafficker John Hawkins. These early voyages, although not yet establishing the slave trade as we think of it, turned African people into commodities and began a process of dehumanisation in the eyes of white British people, who weren't even technically British at this point. At the same time, it gave those early white explorers a brand new way to win money, favour and establish themselves as adventuring conquerors. Modern capitalism and racism were born from the same womb. I've asked Dr Misha Ewan, a specialist in the social and economic history of the early modern Atlantic world, to give me some more insight into the mindset of the first traffickers like Sir John Hawkins and how they felt able to enslave other human beings. Increasingly over the 17th century, blackness and being black is increasingly associated with enslaved status. So for these English traders who are first dipping their toes into the trade in the 16th century, it's not something that to them would be viewed as, you know, highly immoral, especially because the people that they are kidnapping in Africa and selling into slavery are also not Christian. And that's a massive factor for them in why this trade is justified. English people at this time would have understood that no other Christian could be enslaved, but anybody who was not Christian could rightfully be enslaved. So in the 16th century, individuals like John Hawkins are building upon several cultural assumptions about why the trade in enslaved Africans is justified, whether those are racial or religious or to do with kind of imperial outlook. This jewel that Queen Elizabeth had called the Drake Jewel, and it featured an image of an African on this jewel, something that quite nicely symbolises that, I guess, this trade, yeah, has huge sort of economic capital, but also kind of cultural capital as well through the representation of these images in this quite elite sort of jewellery making as well. Because of the economic benefits, it starts being a form of social capital to be involved in the trade. At this stage, what were the Lady Margarets, the wives of the early traffickers, doing? How was their relationship to African people evolving? In the 17th century, it's really common if you walk around the National Portrait Gallery and other art galleries across the UK to see these portraits of very elite English women with their enslaved African servants in England, whose status, obviously, we can't be entirely sure that they were understood as being enslaved. But I think because of what we know about how this trade was operating in this period, that's certainly what they were meant to represent. And obviously, putting these images in these portraits was meant to further reinforce the idea that these women are elite and rich, but also reinforce ideas of whiteness, which are developing in this period. Margaret Hawkins' bequeathment allowed a free school to be set up in Herefordshire, which still exists today with her name on it. It's those kind of links, as Misha says, these prospects that were being fed back into the communities in Britain that are the legacy of slavery. 
It's not like they were built specifically on the blood of the enslaved, but it's money, it's plantation societies and networks. That's what makes this fascinating. I asked Misha whether she thought that perhaps there's been less research done on these women and where their money's going because people just aren't as interested in women's prospects in that period. Is that the simple truth? I think definitely you've sort of hit the nail on the head in the, obviously in the last sort of, you know, 30, 40 years, there have been massive leaps in gender history and feminist history. I mean, it baffles me really why the role of women and gender has not been... So actually, I was, I was about to say the role of women and gender hasn't been considered as much in histories of slavery. That's not so true. I think over the last 20 years, there's been a lot of research on the lives of enslaved women themselves, their experiences of slavery, how they resisted slavery. I think where there's still a gap and some space to make some strides in historical research is the role of white women in these practices. Why they have been left out and ignored, I don't know. I mean, I think historians have been attuned to the role of yeah, very elite women, whether that's Elizabeth I or these court women who you see in these portraits. I think even though there have been a lot of studies of you know the lives of ordinary women, should we say, in England more recently, there just hasn't been as much that looks at the connections between how some of these women are making their livelihoods and colonialism I do think that's starting to change, especially with a kind of newer generation of scholars who are basically advancing the idea that English history, English domestic history, is not separate from what is happening in the colonies and in the empire in this period. And often they've been treated quite separately. So there's been a lot of work on plantation slavery in the Caribbean and in America, but often those histories are not joined up with what's happening in England at this time. I do think that's starting to change. And there've been some really rich studies recently by scholars like Stephanie Jones Rogers of female slave ownership in America. This year, Christine Walker's book on female slave owners in Jamaica. So I think it is starting to change. But even in those two examples, they're focusing on women in the colonies. And so I think historians of English social and economic history, it's us that need to be doing more to think about the ways that these connections are, yeah, making their way back into England at this time. I've got so many questions. I want to know more about the women who came after Lady Margaret who were slave owners in their own right, not merely beneficiaries. I want to know what happened next. How did slavery start becoming a money-making machine that sent so many millions of Africans to their deaths in the colonies? What other sleepy corners of Britain, like Herefordshire, are hiding the scars of this dark past? And how do we reconcile ourselves with them in order to heal? It's clear I've got a long way to go, but I've got an idea of where I'm going next a tree in Lincolnshire. Human Resources was written by me, Moya Lothian-McLean, produced by Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Arisa Lumba and Dr. Alison Bennett. Sound design and original music by Ben Williams, J-Hope on the violin, and with thanks to Sandra Dobrzemski for additional support and Tony Phillips. This is a Broccoli production.